Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And how can you have the dignity of humanity if people aren't involved? It's a, if it's a very, as the intro said, very un-Jeffersonian uh, system of money and how it gets controlled. Where is the democracy? Have we morphed into a complete plutocracy? Is there any way out of it? President Obama and the Democratic candidates say the economy is improving, the jobless rate is holding at less than 5% officially. But how real is this alleged recovery? Is the problem and the solution really more basic and structural than the current holders of debt will even consider allowing us to look at? Is it time to actually erase debts? Yes, erase debts as a way to more effectively restart the economy and create new jobs. Is this all practical? Is there any precedent for something like this? Well, our guest today is Mike Krauss, who is founding director of the Public Banking Institute and chair of the Pennsylvania Project and a former officer of the Pennsylvania County and State Government and director of the Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania rather Republican Party. Thanks for being with us, Mike Krauss. Please tell us first about the Public Banking Institute and the Pennsylvania Project with which you are involved. Well, the Public Banking Institute was formed back in 2011 uh, to move forward the idea of public banks as they have had in North Dakota for over 100 years. And the Pennsylvania Project is one of a couple dozen local organizations uh, moving these same activities forward, whether at a state level or at a, a local level, a county, a city, municipality. Um, might be interesting how I, how I came to this. I was, uh, my business has been, has been international logistics, and I was in Africa and came back uh, in late 2008 and saw things fall apart and said, geez, what, what just happened here? I went to find out. That led me to a book by Bill Greider called Secrets of the Temple, and it explained what the Federal Reserve is all about and how our banking system actually works which is that the Fed is a private corporation owned by the nation's banks, and it works for the banks. And that, that kind of told me all I needed to know. Right. Well, one of the biggest attractions that many people found to Ron Paul's candidacy in years past was his call, and it seemed to be his alone, his call to take power away from the privately owned Federal Reserve System and instead democratize it. Now, Hillary Clinton has proposed public-private partnerships in which, if I have it right, the public would provide the guarantee to attract private investment. So it seems like we, the people, take the risk while they 
the private investment people uh, reap the profits, while a large portion of the money goes to paying back interest instead of the creation of new public works jobs as uh, advertised. Do I have that right? Well, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly correct. Uh, what a public bank does is it keeps your funds locally productive. Uh, you use your own funds, pension funds, other investments to capitalize the bank. You put your own deposits, your tax revenues, what have you, in the bank. It functions as a bank, uh, but not a retail bank. It, it has no infrastructure, no branches, tellers, ATMs, that sort of stuff. That it makes them very profitable. Those profits can be returned to the general fund, reinvested in more loans. But in any event, the bank then partners with local banks to get affordable credit into the community, or it can loan directly to uh, municipalities. For example, the Bank of North Dakota is putting 1.5% money out there to school districts to uh, refurbish new schools, add classrooms, add science labs, what have you, instead of going after a bond issue. But whatever interest is paid is captured in your own bank. The alternative, what we're hearing more about as regards infrastructure, are public-private partnerships. And that's, that's a Wall Street special. They use public money to guarantee and leverage private investors, and the private investors then finance, own, and rent back to you what used to be public infrastructure. That's just, you know, that's privatization heaven. And from my point of view, it's largely a scam. A scam. Well, it is certainly uh, profitable. Uh, if you just tuned in, our guest today is Mike Krause, a founding director of the Public Banking Institute. And we're talking about kind of a, a new idea, and that is to erase debts. Now, I'm, uh, how would you define that? We're not talking about, you know, people, individuals borrow money from lending institutions. We're not talking about erase those debts. What what are you talking about? And tell us about this uh, article that you wrote on Truthdig about this subject. Well, what I was getting out of the article is the overarching problem, which is the, the nation is simply drowning in debt. Uh, governments, students, individuals, businesses are just loaded up with debt, yes. uh, and the interest on that debt. And we're on a treadmill just paying off the interest, and that just sucks money out of the economy and out of your household budget for private and productive purposes. So the, the major need I see is to, is to pay down, or pay off, or get rid of the debt. Now, I say I see. I, I'm hardly expert here, uh, but uh, Michael Hudson, who is expert, wrote a book called Killing the Host, and it lays out just how the financial community has, has been like the third arm of modern economics. You know, we used to think yeah. there were workers and there were capitalists. Right. Uh, but now we have financialists, and they're in the middle of all our transactions. And, and they're sucking money out of the laborer's pocket and out of the capitalist's pocket. So uh, financialization, it's called, make everything into a deal right. uh, and leverage money right and left and use that to get more debt. Uh, just extracts money from your household budget, from your city budget, and from your businesses, for that matter, too. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we, one of the attractions about the Bernie Sanders campaign was uh, eliminating uh, students' debts. Students have a lot of debts and very high-interest debts. And the power of the financial industry, I think it was Kevin Phillips, who for years has been talking about uh, this new twist in within our economic system, which is uh, the, the incredible power of the financial houses, which, as you say, are something uh, really uh, different and, and unique. And I know Franklin Roosevelt talked about uh, the power of... Sure, and, and, and we have simply, through legislation, tilted the field away from the productive economy to the speculative economy, allowing the, the big banks to combine their banking and finance industries was like one of the great... Uh, really bad decisions of the 20th century. 
know, after the Depression, uh, Roosevelt and uh, his support in Congress through the Glass-Steagall Act separated yes. out the banks and the finance industry. Uh, but the Clinton era, that was legislation was gotten rid of. It was called a great modernization. But it simply allowed the banks then to take deposits money and use that to underwrite and leverage their bets, their speculation. Um, you know, th- that's what's underwriting the derivatives market. You know, so you, right now you see banks like Wells Fargo and uh, Chase and others, they're suddenly interested in more retail customers. You know, come bank with us. Well, they want your deposits to underwrite uh, their gambling, basically. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, and those derivatives, which we're underwriting, are like, you know, grown to several hundreds of trillions of dollars. Mm. If these bets go sideways, there's not enough money in the FDIC or anywhere in the world to cover them. And I think we're heading for another crash. Uh, and what happens is we'll, they'll, we'll bail in the banks. They'll just seize the positive money, as they did in Cyprus, for example. I, I think that's what's coming. So one of the needs that public banking meets is to secure your funds away from uh, the, the risky practices of the Wall Street banks, which have gone unchecked, frankly, over the last eight years. They've just gotten worse. Yeah, they have gotten worse, certainly. And, uh, you know, the, the situation that created the... Uh, the crisis back in 2008, 2009 has only gotten worse, and there's just no checks whatsoever. I mean, we have the Dodd-Frank bill, which doesn't seem to be very much. And again, the uh, you know Bernie Sanders called for uh, a restoration, a modernization of the Glass-Steagall Act, which, as you described, separated out the, the financial houses from the banks. Uh, your article in Truthig offers an alternative and that is to let the Treasury extend almost zero interest loans to state and local governments to pay off their debts because states and local governments, of course, borrow money. They issue bonds. They borrow money. Uh, and so you're suggesting that the, the Treasury skips the Federal Reserve, which is there to serve not really the common good, but to serve the investors. It's, to, well, it's important to understand how money is created by the Fed. The Fed doesn't have piles of gold backing its money. That's long gone. The Fed takes the faith and credit of the United States. Yes. It uses that to then go to the bond market, where bond sellers sell that faith and credit at interest. They return that money to the Fed, and the Fed gives it to the Treasury. This is insane. We have a middleman. Uh, mm-hmm. We're paying exorbitant interest rates. For the, per- for the privilege of having our own money. What, what I'm proposing, uh, and others have proposed, I think, is to bypass the Fed uh, to attack the, the big macro problem, which is the debt burden. We must do something to, leave, to, to erase that debt burden. So, for example, if, if the Treasury, as did Lincoln, and as uh, Secretary LaHood proposed way back when, simply pr- provided the money directly from the Treasury, uh, are facing credit to local governments, for example, to pay off debt. Well, that means school districts, authorities, towns, cities can pay down their debt immediately. That that debt service portion goes out of the local budget and either reduces the tax burden or frees up those taxes for productive purpose in the community. That was one idea. The second is then, of course, to extend $3 trillion of that same almost no-cost credit for infrastructure projects, which would generate an explosion of activity yes. in the in the public productive sector in the, in the supply chain of goods and services. It would be extraordinary. And the third idea was to pay down student debt. You know, right now, the Bank of North Dakota is offering very low-cost loans for every student in the state to consolidate all its more expensive debt, hmm. uh, eliminating that debt burden. 
that we need to get the debt burden off the American people so we can focus our, our monies on productive purposes. That debt burden is largely artificial. It was created because we have a middleman. Yes. The, the, the larger banks, the bond, the bond system, what have you, in the middle of creating our money and then loaning us money at exorbitant rates uh, for public purposes. We don't need them. That's the macro. The micro is then to, to, to rehabilitate our banking system and create public banks so that our tax revenues, our local assets, are put to work locally, local direction, local purposes, local control, local profit. That, that is a way of decentralizing the banking system and strengthening our community banks, local credit unions, the local banking industry, as against the Wall Street banks. Hmm. So I wonder, and more and more people are doing that, Democrats, Republicans, liberals, and conservatives, they like to, I mean, there's this new sort of ethos of keep your money local. Don't put it in a big bank, you know, the, uh, what, First National Bank, Bank of America, the big banks, uh, and, and keep it local so that they can lend uh, locally. What happens to these banks now, these for-profit, frankly, banks, and, and they're making it on a shoestring these days. I mean, I don't know how they're doing it, really. But what, what happens? We have a very uneven playing field in the banking industry. Uh, the biggest banks just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're squeezing out the local banks. Uh, we want to give market share back to the local banks and credit unions and, and savings and loans, who frankly are, they live in the community. They're, they're related to what's going on. They care. Uh, you know, you, you go to, let's say, say, Wells Fargo for a loan. Mm-hmm. Somebody a thousand miles away makes that decision. There's yes. absolutely no connection to your community whatsoever. <laughs> I know. You know. The local officers are just intake people. They push paper, uh, and it goes to a center someplace else. Uh, and someone who doesn't know you, can't size you up as a customer, uh, doesn't know about your community, doesn't care about your community, they make the decisions based on their next quarterly statement. Right. Uh, that's a rotten way to bank. <laughs> it's great if you're a big bank. It's terrible if you're a community, which needs banking services uh, sized to and built around the needs of the community. That's one thing that public banking does. The whole, the whole idea, Bert, is to facilitate and encourage our diversity. You know, going back to de Tocqueville, who observed the tremendous diversity of American people, we've only gotten more diverse. That diversity is, is an asset. And if you can enable that asset, then you enable that diversity in the country. So public banking is a way to democratize our banking, but at the same time to enable the diversity of our, of our nation. Uh, we think that's a way, a way back to greater productivity. It seems to make a lot of sense, and again, it is working in North Dakota and other places. But and I thought it was very interesting that that the Federal Reserve System is charging us high interest to use our own money. Now, the, the, there's nothing, if I understand it correctly, there's nothing stopping the Treasury from creating this new money and bypassing the Federal Reserve and cutting out the bankster middlemen. Uh, for their, you know, serious interest. No, uh, Lincoln did it with an act of Congress, uh, and it can be done again. The, 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 the Treasury can be directed to engage in this activity. It, it used to. It can. Uh, understand, um, the, the Congress can do anything it wants. Yes. <laughs> if tomorrow, in a week's time, there could be a, an amendment to overturn the Citizens United if the Congress wanted to do that. Right. Um, and if the Congress wanted to enable treasury to make these kinds of transactions it could do it the power resides in the congress they just have to want to do it uh, and obviously as most listeners will know the the banking industry meaning the wall street banks have enormous enormous clout in washington we, we all know that. oh yeah you know, it was one of, i'm not telling it. anybody anything new here yeah uh, so it will require putting people on the spot uh 
that is to say, the Council of Congress, and say, okay, what do you want to do here? We have these problems. Here's one way to fix it. You know, what's your idea? Uh, and do, do you or do you not want to get out from under the debt burden? Mm-hmm. I don't think people generally understand yeah. just how phenomenally in debt we are and, and why and to whom. Mm. We're indebted to a global financial cartel. That's to whom we are indebted. They're sucking money out of the United States of America. They're like a gigantic parasite. Uh, it needn't be that way. It didn't used to be that way. It needn't be that way in the future. But it, but it will require citizens to understand the scam going on here, the longest-running con game since the Fed was created, and put an end to the con game, uh, and use our own treasury to fund productive purposes in our own economy. I mean, it can be done. There's no constitutional part of this. Mm-hmm. There's no legal bar to it. Uh, it's simply a matter of political will. And the Federal Reserve System came in in the early part of the 20th century, is that correct? 1913. And what made it happen? Seems odd. Well, what made it happen was an enormous lobbying effort. If, if you read William Greidel's Secrets of the Temple, which uh, goes through the history of the Fed, yeah, you discover a decades-long campaign uh, to wrest control of the nation's money supply into the hands of the banking elite. It was a long, long campaign. They, they employed academics. They employed journalists, which we call lobbyists. They were mm. called flats. What have you. It was a long, long campaign over two decades. Uh, to persuade the Congress to make this move, and eventually it prevailed. Uh, but it was a you know it was a banking coup basically uh, that took unto itself the, the control over the, of the supply and the cost of the nation's money. It, it, this is an old battle. It's been going on for ages. Uh, mm. If you read uh, Ellen Brown's, Ellen Brown's The Public Bank Solution, you get a history of this ongoing war uh, to wrest control of the, the, the wealth of nations, including our nation, Great mm-hmm. Britain, others into the hands of a, of a financial elite. Somewhere, there's a marvelous quote of one of the Rothschilds back in 1820, somewhere like that. And he said, give me control of a nation's money, and I care not who makes the laws. Mm-hmm. It's an enormous power, <laughs> and we've given it to a global cartel. Wow, that's why uh, Franklin Roosevelt said that uh, the power of organized money is as dangerous as uh, government by organized mob. Very, very similar. Well, that, that you just said something interesting. If you read Matt Tybee and uh, other folks from Rolling Stone, he compares banking to a mob racket. That, that's just organized crime, basically, uh, which goes unpunished, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, you know, one of the little signs you get of how things actually are uh, is that, you know, after all this criminal activity, huge investigations, massive fraud, banks got fined for felonies. Banks got paid, had to pay, you know, billions of dollars of fines, but no banker went to jail. Mm-hmm. So great. What a, what, a, what a wonderful racket. But, the, <laughs> you know, the Fed's going to cover for us. And that's what happened. My goodness. I, I guess in Iceland they did it pretty differently recently. They actually uh, put some of those guys in jail. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, our guest uh, on this half hour is Mike Krauss, where he's founding uh, director of the Public Banking Institute and chair of the Pennsylvania Project, and we're talking about uh, uh, eliminating debt, erasing the debt, doing it as it seems like our founders intended us to use our own money and have some democratic process in it. And talking about history, tell us about the precedent set by Abraham Lincoln after the war against the South. What did he do that uh, is sort of... Well, during the war, uh, Lincoln had the same problem. Uh, He was going to the banks of New York, or the government was, to finance the war. And they wanted, you know, 30% interest, that sort of stuff. And he <laughs> said, well, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. 
uh, and he passed the law in the Congress. And that led to, over time, the creation of $450 million of treasury bills called greenbacks that were green. Um, and that was put into the economy to pay the war, pay soldiers' salaries, and then later uh, for an economic expansion that followed, which was substantial. He simply cut out the middleman. Uh, of course, after Lincoln died, that law was overturned, and mm. we went back to bank financing. But that $450 million then, in today's dollars, is about $6.3 billion. So this, this can be done. The numbers we're proposing, uh, $3, bill, $3 trillion, I'm, let me say that again, that's that $450 million is $6.3 trillion in today's dollars. Yeah, real dollars. So clearly, uh, the Treasury has the capacity to help state, local government, school districts pay off their debts. Clearly, it has the capacity to fund cities and counties and states in infrastructure projects. Clearly, it has the capacity to eliminate student debt, or at least to refinance it at much lower terms. Uh, and easing that debt burden then frees up what we're paying in interest to go into our own communities, our own families, our own businesses. It, it is potentially a revolutionary. And I wonder if any talk about revolutionary, this was a uh, term that Bernie Sanders used quite a bit. D- did he have anything like this in his proposals? And are there any candidates now talking about anything like this? Did you, are there any candidates talking about this? Yeah, I mean... It, yes, when, yes, of course. There, there are people running for state treasurer, uh, state representative, state senator, members of Congress, uh, all over the nation. Uh, Tim Canova, by the way, mm-hmm. who's opposing Debbie Wasserman Schultz down there in Florida in yes. that primary, yes. is an advocate of public banking and uh-huh. the Federal Reserve reform. Uh, fellow running for state treasurer out in Washington. Uh, you have uh, uh, folks in New Hampshire... Uh, I think it's uh, State Rep. Valley Fraser, who's an advocate of public banking. Uh, there's a, a city councilman and, and also uh, a state rep, uh, Chris, uh, Chris Herbert, uh, who's uh, is supportive of this. We have mayors, city council members, ideas, bills uh, moving forward in city councils and state legislatures. So the answer is yes. Uh, we're building a national caucus uh, of advocates of public banking, uh, but trying to put them in the context of, of finance reform. Uh, and control of our money and, and democratizing it again. Yes. So the answer is yes. There are people who highlighted this uh, message in their campaigns running for office right now at, at Congress, state rep, city council, state treasurer, across the nation, coast to coast. And when there are uh, usurious interest rates uh, paid by different countries around the world, uh, developing nations, uh, the... the uh, gang <laughs> that lends money to them, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, haven't they refinanced the debt? Have, have they ever forgiven a debt of a country and just erased the debt? And, and Almost never. Uh, yeah, what the World Bank and uh, IMF do is they simply refinance, and they pile more debt upon more debt. That's, yeah, that's how they ran Greece under the ground. Yeah. They just kept extending more and more credit. With, by the way, with a risk premium, this is a, this is a sweetheart deal. Uh, you know, you're going to loan to Greece or you're going to loan to Detroit or Puerto Rico, for example, and you say, gee, that's risky. So instead of 8%, I'll make it 13% or 7%. <laughs> I want a risk premium. Well, then they go under, and the bond will say, we want all our money back, including the risk premium. Mm-hmm. So we took the risk, and uh, there is a risk, but we'll, we want to be paid for it anyway. And that's, that's a, just typical of what goes on in global finance. That that would be uh, make any uh, mafia person uh, envious, I imagine. Yeah, it's it, it, 
<laughs> as, as Matt Tybee said, it's, you know, it's basically, it's a mob. It's a racket. Yeah. Uh, it's a first-class racket. It's a good racket. <laughs> uh, and they've been getting away with it for decades, and we need to put an end to the racket. I got to ask, did, did Franklin Roosevelt, did he go through the Federal Reserve, which was in existence at the time, or did he go straight? FDR dealt with the Fed. Uh, it, it was there, but he had a sharp Fed chairman, uh, Myron X, who understood all this, who knew how the money was created. But Roosevelt went around them. He had a reconstruction finance corporation that grew to be the largest company in the United States uh, financing much of the New Deal reconstruction. Um, and he, he bypassed um, the Fed in that regard. Uh, it went to the Congress. Uh, and Congress saw this was a great deal. All these projects. I mean, you know, the, the, re, the, the finance agency employed, what, 8 million people? It built, I don't know, the, the San Antonio Riverwalk, Pennsylvania Turnpike, LaGuardia Airport, oh, yeah. Dam. You know, national parks projects all across the nation was quite quite successful. Yes, and it was run independent of the Fed. It was a private corporation uh, that Roosevelt set up. Hmm. Did, but they didn't make money back, did they? I mean, they didn't charge interest, did they? Well, it, it, it stayed. In, it, by the way, it stayed in business into the fifties when the banks realized that they were being cut out uh-huh. of the financing of uh-huh. all these projects, uh-huh. and they quietly killed it. Uh, in I think nineteen. Of course. It, had, it was at its time the biggest corporation in the United States by asset and by dollar amount. And it was a government corporation. Um, and it put public money to public purposes and cut out, simply cut out the finance guys in the middle. Uh, and so it was an adjustment to the capitalist system. So we actually got back to workers and capitalists and not so many financialists. Mm. Now that's been totally wiped away. Uh, and the financial sector is bigger than the labor sector, it's bigger than the capital sector, it dominates the economy. Uh, and it, it's grown to ever and ever larger, and it's just sucking money out of the American body public. And Edgar Bronfman called interest the greatest invention of the world. And we have this capitalist system, which depends on what Edgar Bronfman loves so much, interest. Wouldn't what's being proposed here threaten capitalism itself? Well, we, we, we are hung up on definitions and slogans, frankly. Um, late 20th century capitalism is, uh, has uh, evolved into ever larger and larger global monopolies. At some point in time, capitalists survive with, by getting rid of competition. Uh, and so what you see globally is this ever larger tend towards global monopolies. That's what the Trans-Pacific Trade Pact is all about. Uh. It's about globalizing certain industries, uh, creating huge monopolies, uh, factoring out competition. Uh, and, and rigging the marketplace. So, so, you know, 20th century capitalism is basically dying. Uh, maybe of its own success, maybe not, but it's certainly dying uh, into global monopolies, which is the, 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 the last latent malignant form of capitalism. Uh, and it's, you know, it's either going to, it's either going to rule the world uh, and we'll hmm. become serfs of a debt plantation, as it were, or hmm. we change that. Uh, so we're arguing for change. At the macro level, we want to see the government directly fund its own activities and bypass the middlemen who charge interest to give us that money. And at the micro level, we want to see public banks at the, at the state, local, county level using local resources to capitalize the bank uh, and putting local deposits in that bank and putting to work for locally directed purposes. That would be a, a great democratization of our economy. Uh, you know, my degree is not in economics. I'm learning this as I go. It's in government. But what I know from my government studies is that in all societies, almost every time, political power is a function of wealth. 
And when wealth is concentrated, then so too is political power. Yeah. If you deconcentrate the wealth, you will, of necessity, and eventually deconcentrate the political power. So when I look at the United States today, I say, well, political reform would be great, but that's not the first purpose. You, you must reform the economy, and then the political reform will follow as a uh-huh. matter of course. Uh-huh. Decentralize the money, and you will decentralize the power. So that's why, I've, although I'm a government major, I'm these days focused on banking and, and, and economics, because I think I understand the way the game is played. Well, that makes it pretty clear. I mean, and the title of the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It is one heavy lift. We all need to be part of it. And, and you know, I prefer democracy to plutocracy. I really do. And I think you do, too, Mike Krause. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, very informative. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, you know, what, what website? Well, it's can you- my pleasure. And let me just ask folks who are interested yeah. to go to one of two websites. Uh, we have the Pennsylvania Project, www.publicbankingpa.org and the national organization, www.publicbankinginstitute.org. There is a wealth of information there, papers, resources, studies, current events. It's, uh, it's a good education. We will get there. I'm convinced of it. Thank you again so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't really mean to include that, but uh, we'll let it go. <laughs> That's <laughs> it expresses uh, Bruce Coburn's feelings about uh, the power of the lenders. Well, we're going to uh, continue to look at things that are changing, things that uh, it, the idea is coming around. Uh, for a long time, there's been huge power of the finance industry over Congress. For a very long time, there's been huge power of what's known as the Israel lobby over Congress, uh, specifically APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee. That is starting to change. And at the 2016 Democratic National Convention, where I was a delegate for Bernie Sanders, of course, one could not help but notice the president of the End the Occupation Movement. And at various gatherings in Philadelphia during uh, the convention, there were uh, lapel stickers, and on the convention floor itself, though I doubt it was formally permitted, a very good-sized Palestinian flag 
could be seen right there on the floor. There was an unmistakable and enthusiastic call among many delegates to craft a new American policy toward Israel and the nearly 50-year occupation of Palestinian lands. So while it appears Democratic National Committee delegates support Palestinian rights, the National Democratic Party, the party insiders, the establishment, is not quite there yet. They do not. Despite the widely held sentiment in the platform itself, a very different statement exists. I'm pleased to have with us as guest on this part of Keeping Democracy Alive, Tamar Gubbin, I hope I pronounced that right, who is uh, a, oh, good, a Palestinian-American organizer from Philadelphia who now works at the U.S. campaign to end the Israel occupation as the government affairs associate. She's also currently working as head of, the, of distribution for the Arab Studies Institute pedagogical project, Gaza in Context, and is so good to know context and history, which... <laughs> It's a pet peeve of mine, which is an interdisciplinary project that aims to uh, resuscitate the question of Gaza within a broader Israeli settler colonial framework, and it uses uh, the latest Israeli military uh, onslaught, Operation Protective Eagle. You can explore that project on GazaInContext.com. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Tamar. Uh, What was the goal of the presence in Philadelphia, and how successful would you say it was at reaching that goal? Sure. Um, So again, thank you so much for having me on. I'm very happy to be here and to talk about, you know, our work. Um, So the goal, we were actually at both the RNC and the DNC this year um, because, you know, as a 501c3, we can't endorse parties or candidates, so we had to uh, have a presence at both places. And... Oh. Our goal uh, was just to amplify the cause of Palestinian human rights to make it, you know, to the best of our abilities, part of this national conversation. You know, so to make that happen, as you mentioned, we held educational events outside of both conventions. We made, you know, T-shirts and stickers and buttons and posters that all had a simple message that said, "I support Palestinian human rights," and and this was the merchandise that um, became quite surprisingly very popular at the Democratic Convention, especially among the delegates. Um, You know, by the time the convention was over, we essentially ran out of everything. Um, Nice problem. Yeah, so it it was exciting. How about your reception at the Republican National Convention? What was that like? (laughs) Um, Quite different. (laughs) You know, we were not able to gain um, the level of access that we were able to at the Democratic Convention, Um, but certainly, you know, as a result of this progressive push on the Democratic side, you know, Palestine was um, certainly way more accepted at the Democratic Convention. It was amazingly uh, pervasive. You you couldn't just walk around in those crowds without seeing to end the occupation, Palestinian human rights stickers, and that flag out there. Somebody must have snuck that in. Congratulations <laughs> to whomever it was. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very exciting. I mean, the, the first flag, you know, it showed up on the first night, and there was actually a number of delegates who held up another flag on the last night, although that didn't get um, as much coverage. So, you know, it, all of this is to say that... Um, 
the energy that we're seeing, the excitement for Palestinian human rights that we're seeing, which has been reflected in a number of, of public opinion polls over the past few years, you know, I'm specifically sure. if you're looking at the Brookings Institute poll conducted by Dr. Shibli Talhami, you know, which states that 49% of Democrats recommend either imposing economic sanctions or taking more serious actions on Israeli settlements. Um, and that's one poll. Another poll is the, a Pew poll that states that liberal Democrats increasingly sympathize more with Palestinians than with Israelis, and, and we really saw that at the Democratic Convention. And yet, there's the Democratic Party platform, which I had a chance to look at that particular section. Uh, tell us a bit about the official platform language as compared to the growing sentiment that you and I both felt at the convention. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if you take one look at the platform and compare it to what you saw at the convention, obviously, there's a big disparity. Um, and, you know, for a platform that has been touted as the most progressive democratic platform, right, right. while this is certainly true on many issues, you know, a lot of progressive groups, including our own, feel that it, it fell short. And certainly on the issue of Palestinian human rights, it fell short. And what is and, it? You know, for, for the record, we're quite disappointed in the Republican platform as oh, well. Sure. Although that's that's a bit more uh, obvious. Yeah, uh, yeah. And well, go ahead. What what does yeah. it kind of say in the platform with regard to uh, the yeah. Israel-Palestinian uh, issue? So the language that is that was um, accepted into the platform is is really much of the same that has been over the past few years. You know, there's talk about a two-state solution you know, a Palestinian state being viable and independent and sovereign. Um, there's also language condemning the uh, Palestinian-led nonviolent campaign for boycott, divestment, sanction against Israel. Um, and there's also language that states quite confusingly that Jerusalem should remain the capital of Israel, but also should be left up to final status negotiations. Um, and I also just wanted to remark on the two amendments that were proposed oh, yes, during the platform that. process. Yeah, yeah, please do. Sure. So one was um, stating that it was an amendment calling for the end to the Israeli occupation, as you mentioned now, in its 50th year, entering its 50th year, and also an end to the illegal Israeli settlements. That amendment was unfortunately voted down 95 to 73 and the second mm. amendment was an amendment calling to, quote, rebuild Gaza, which the U.N. warns could be uninhabitable by 2020, mm. and where poverty mm. and hopelessness undermine peace and security for both Palestinians and Israelis. And that was also voted down 95 um, to 72. And multiple news outlets reported that when these amendments were voted down, it received the loudest boos of the day. So, you know, again, that is very indicative of the disparity. But it's also, I mean, it's it's not a total wipeout, 90-something to 70-something. That That's uh, making some change. That must uh, put a little bit of sweat uh, into the uh, APAC crowd. I mean, that's, you know, it's not 100%. So it, it kind of indicates that 
as as Bob Dylan sang, something's happening here, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? If you just tuned in at this point, our guest today is Tamar Gubbin, Gubbin uh, and we're talking about uh, the U.S. campaign to end Israeli occupation and the presence at the Democratic and Republican conventions. It was uh, very, very powerful. It, it's uh, amazing to me and to many Democratic delegates and party activists that our nominee, Hillary Clinton, has actually promised to bolster the U.S. alliance with Israel and increase military aid. Please tell us what you know about that. Sure. So, you know, this is, um, I think, a result of of her close uh, relationship with the donor, Haim Saban, and also certainly the influence of APAC. Um, and, you know, it's it's very apparent to me that, and to you, and to probably lots of other people out there, that things are changing. So, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, it you know, there's talk about this new memorandum of understanding that is going to be signed any day now, which boosts uh, military aid to Israel. So, you know, we'll see. You know, at this point, who knows really? But we can still pressure her. And I, if the election were being held today, I don't think to any question it would be a massive landslide. But the pressure has to continue. That's for sure. One thing that, that yeah. has concerned me, we Democrats have traditionally always been the party which treasures freedom of speech, our First Amendment rights. But what can you tell us about the attitude of the party toward the growing boycott, sanction, and divest movement, just in terms of, of freedom of speech on this? Yeah, so, you know, the campaign for boycott, divestment, and sanctions has, has certainly been growing in power over the past few years. Um, and the fight has sort of moved from college campuses, you know, where students were quite successfully passing divestment resolutions um, and has now moved to to state legislatures at this point. There are a number of bills um, that have passed or are still sort of um, being considered in state legislatures, which, you know, have a variety of of punishments, but but the main, uh, you know, idea behind these bills is to punish companies and nonprofits and organizations that support the nonviolent Palestinian-led campaign for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. And this is very clearly um, a violation of the First Amendment. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a little bit scary, but, yeah. you know, even in the cases in which these bills are passing, it's very clear that they're not going to be around for very long. It's just a, a blatant violation of the Constitution. Yeah, it's amazing how... You know, Go ahead. Yeah. No, more than anything, I think it really, it shows the power of this movement. Yeah, to shut down uh, something as traditionally treasured as, as freedom of speech by by liberals, by Democrats, it's it's just surprising. And I've heard it said, I'm sure you have too, Tamar, that uh, uh, <laughs> people can be progressive on everything but Israel. I think that's starting to change. Now, as, I, as we mentioned, the support on the convention floor was very visible. Is it fair to say that there is a change among important grassroots of the Democratic Party and that there is a disconnect between the party insiders and 
party regulars who have, you know, the party insiders have long catered to big money interests, at least since uh, the Clintons came in in the 1990s. Do you think, I mean, the fall elections are, are right close here. Do you think there's evidence of change that we might see in this fall fall's election, or is, might that be too optimistic that, you know, a shift away from the the hardline Israel can do no wrong to what seems to be the majority of the party activists. What do you think for this fall? Any predictions? You know, I, I don't think I'm in a position to make any predictions, but you know what I can tell you from the work that I did at the conventions, from my connection with, you know, up-and-coming party leaders and delegates is that this is no longer a contentious issue, especially among uh, younger Democrats, right. among people of color, definitely. Right. Um, so, you know, to say that it's going to produce a change in this upcoming election, I'm not so sure. Right. But, you know, also in terms of, of lawmakers, you know, there are a growing number of representatives who are supporting our issue. Um, there's a growing, you know, sort of informal caucus of uh, lawmakers who support Palestinian human rights. Interesting. Well, I, I would say I'm, I'm reminded of uh, during the war, America's war in Vietnam, uh, and yes, I am old enough to remember that, that <laughs> our best organizer for the anti-war movement was Richard Nixon. <laughs> and I can't help but think that the ingre- increasingly aggressive, hardline actions of the current Netanyahu government of, of, of Israel has got to be pushing traditional liberal Democrats towards sympathy with the Palestinians. You, you get that sense, too? I mean, I, I think, I mean, he's just so outrageous. He's He's, he's uh, moving the uh, movement a- away from, uh, you know, the traditional hardline support. I just, I see that happen, and as you say, especially with young people. And mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, what, what was his position on Palestinian rights? I mean, young people and Bernie Sanders are like one and the same somehow. Here's a 74-year-old guy, but it's the future of the Democratic Party. What, what was his position on Palestinian rights? Sure. I mean, you know, I would definitely agree with your assessment um, that you just mentioned about, you know, Netanyahu pushing people. And and certainly, you know, during the war in 2014, um, our membership and the membership of lots of other similar national organizations increased exponentially because people were so disgusted and horrified at, you know, the increasingly violent and belligerent Israeli government. and to your point about Bernie Sanders, I mean, he certainly opened up the conversation uh, with his comments, you know, specifically at the the debate in Brooklyn uh, with Hillary Clinton. And the the good and bad thing about that was, you know, he simply said that Palestinians deserve respect, right? You know, yeah, really? <laughs> or comments along those lines. It was it was something so basic and human. Um, and and that really shook the foundation of of APAC and of the Israeli lobby and um, of this you know stranglehold on what has been seemingly you know unbreakable support for Israel. Yeah, that's been the case. Again, if you just yeah. tune in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. I guess today is Tamar Gabin, who is uh, with 
the uh, she's a Palestinian American organizer with the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation. We're talking about where the Democratic Party is these days. And again, they are 501c3, so they're not supporting any candidates. Uh, but uh, we're just taking a look at it. And they had a heck of a good presence. I was very impressed at the convention. It was really great to see. I went. I don't know who the guy was who had that flag, but I went down to uh, talk to him and uh, congratulate him on uh, getting it out there. He seemed to be a very sharp guy. You probably know who it is. I don't. But uh, I understand many Palestinian children are today in Israeli military detention. Hillary Clinton has, I mean, she wrote about it takes a village. She has a long history of acting on behalf of children. Assuming she is elected, would this thing, would this be put to the test, do you think? I mean, there's this. Tell us what we know about uh, is Palestinian children being held in Israeli military detention. Sure. So there are over, I believe, 700 um, Palestinian children in some form of, of Israeli incarceration. Um, nearly, I think it's just this year. Um, it's a huge problem, obviously. It's a violation of international law. Um, and I also just want to point out that Representative Betty McCollum uh, from Minnesota was circulating a letter earlier this year calling President Obama to appoint a special envoy for Palestinian children. And that letter received 18 other signatures from, from members of Congress. Um, so, you know, the issue of Palestinian children is an issue that is out there. It's something that's being worked on. It's a dire humanitarian uh, crisis. And, you know, whether or not Hillary's going to take that on, include it, you know, in her, her purview of fighting for children's rights, it's hard to say. And, you know, speaking as a Palestinian-American woman, as someone who identifies as a feminist, I mean, I can tell you that Hillary Clinton her brand of, of neoliberal feminism certainly does not mirror that of my own. And, and I would hope that she sees Palestinian women and children and men um, as just deserving of, of these rights that she purports to support. So, you know, I hope so. And I hope that she sees this change. And, and you know, I hope that many other elected officials and those running for office see the very clear change. And that's one great thing I think about the the Bernie Sanders campaign is that it was it took the establishment by massive surprise. It must have made a few uh, powers that be rather apoplectic, apoplectic. That's the word. <laughs> uh, but it's you know it doesn't come from the top down, and democracy always takes a lot of effort, some real sustained heavy lifting. We got a long, long way. I mean, this is, aside from the Palestinian issue, uh, the most progressive uh, platform that the Democratic Party has had. And Franklin Roosevelt, uh, when he met with uh, A. Philip Randolph of the uh, Brotherhood of Pullman uh, Car Porters, a basically black American organization, he sympathized, he wanted to end discrimination, and the president told uh, A. Philip Randolph, okay, I'm with you. Now I'll go out there and make me do it. Politicians need to feel safe. Yeah, they, they're very, for the most part, risk averse. So it's, what I'm getting to is, I, I think, or I'm trying to anyway, is that uh, 
there's a lot that still can be done. Hillary may not be there yet. Most Democratic politicians may not be there yet. What is the uh, campaign to end Israeli occupation doing that people can get involved in and, and can help move the ball forward? What, what is going on now, uh, maybe not in the election, but you know, in, in terms of lobbying, in terms of contacting our members of Congress? They need money, but they also need votes. That's what it's really about. How can people uh, get involved? What is uh, your organization doing about this? Sure. So, you know, we're involved in advocacy on, on multiple different levels. Um, we help with boycott, divestment, and sanction campaigns. We also do some lobbying on the Hill, particularly with other national organizations who are working on this very same issue. So, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace, American Muslims for Palestine, American Friends Service Committee, um, and we're slowly building power on the Hill, which is is very exciting, um, and I would you know recommend to your listeners to to check out our website and the occupation dot org. Um, we are growing as a movement. Certainly, we have over one hundred thousand individual supporters. You know, our coalition is comprised of of hundreds of different organizations. So, if if folks are interested in getting involved, they can definitely connect with organizations um, that are already doing work on the ground. I'm sure, you know, it's all over the country. So, oh, yeah. And I, I did want to ask about the children thing. I can just imagine people, uh, you know, pro-Israel people saying, but some of these children aren't really children, and maybe they're carrying bombs and carrying out uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, could you respond to that a little bit? Sure. I mean... <laughs> They're always going to, to make an excuse for something. Um, you know, the bottom line is that children are protected under international law. You know, Israel has a right under international law to, to treat children in a certain way. Um, certainly, you know, some of these children have committed acts of violence. Um, but I think the question we should be asking ourselves is why are they doing this? Why is a 12-year-old child so depressed and desperate that they, they feel the need to commit, commit an act of violence that they certainly know is not going to achieve anything? The fact of the matter is that these children are committing suicide, essentially, yes, yes. Um, because Israel has a shoot-to-kill policy, um, and they know that very well. So, you know... Why are these children doing this? And I, I, I will never forget the uh, the war that uh, uh, Israel committed on uh, Gaza. What was that? Twenty thirteen, I think. That that huge. Last one was twenty fourteen. Twenty fourteen. I remember seeing some young kids under twelve years old, who some little boy basically saying he hadn't really cared before. He hadn't thought about it before, but with so many people around him killed, he said, "That's it. I'm going to be a suicide bomber." You know, and I, I can understand. Uh, it's just, I mean, after the devastation that happened to Gaza, it's, it's just a dumb policy. And, you know, there's no question uh, the power of money over Congress is huge. The Zionist lobby has been exceptionally powerful in the U.S. Congress. Uh, my guess is even more powerful in the NRA. But they're, either way, they're right up there. Very, very powerful. <laughs> Have they been similarly powerful within the Democratic Party? And is there evidence that, that their, the APAC power, the power of the Zionist lobby, is, is starting to shift? Do you see evidence of that? I mean, I think, you know, 
the Iran deal was, oh, right. I think, a, a crack in the foundation of of Israel of the Israel lobby. Um, I think that it is slowly changing. You know, as we build power on Capitol Hill, as we build power at the grassroots level. You know, it may not happen this year, it may not happen next year, but it's the wheels are in motion. It, it's happening. Um, and I also just wanted to mention to your listeners the recent platform that was published by the Movement for Black Lives last week, um, which is an incredible platform, policy recommendations. In it, there is um, an incredible section on Israel-Palestine about, you know, um, supporting the end to the occupation and Israeli settlements. And this is a group that's comprised of dozens of organizations for racial justice. Um, You know, it it made a big splash last week. And I think that, for me, beyond being uh, evidence of the growing solidarity between the Black Liberation Movement and the the Palestinian Liberation Movement, it's evidence of, of where grassroots movements are going. You know, Palestine is no longer a fringe issue among progressive mm. organizations. It's it's completely normal on the grassroots level. And that eventually is going to build power to the state level and the federal level. And yeah, so APAC yeah, they should they should be worried. Music to my ears. What can I tell you? <laughs> again, the, the the website is what again? And the occupa- Our website is endtheoccupation.org. Endtheoccupation.org. Tamar Gobbin, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, it was a heck of a show and uh, at the convention, and it was uh, very impressive and very uplifting. And I do think time is on your side. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for it. Wait and see. You come running back. I said you would know.